Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, we'll hear about this afternoon's Peace Walk in Newark. People are fed up. Uh, You know, they live in communities where they see violence a lot. Is inflation hurting the Jersey Shore? WBGO's Kenneth Burns takes a look. Cheryl Lozada says it wasn't a question of whether her husband and daughter were going on vacation this year. Her family was going to come here from Hackettstown, New Jersey, regardless of the cost. And I'll chat with Dr. Augusta Palmer, the director of the upcoming documentary, The Blues Society, which is about the blues in Bohemia in 1960s America. I think there was a tendency also to feel like, well, now we recognize these people and their importance and kind of our work is done here, folks. Let's move on. And as we know, you know, that's that's not the that's not the case. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. The city of Newark is hosting a citywide peace walk this afternoon at two o'clock, supporting efforts to create a safer city. The 13-mile course will make its way through the city's five wards. Mayor Raz Baraka says the goal is to create a community that rises up against violence. And takes charge of what's going on in their own neighborhoods and have a better relationship with the police department to begin help them to reduce violence and crime in our own community. That We have to take responsibility for it. Mayor Baraka made his comments on WBGO's Newark Today call-in show. People are fed up. Uh, you know, they live in communities where they see violence a lot. And they want to be in a safe environment to speak out against it. This creates a safe environment for people to do that. Mayor Barack is hoping for a large turnout today, asking Newark business owners to close up shop early for the day to take part in the citywide walk. Also on the show was Newark Superintendent of Schools, Roger Leone. As more COVID-19 related restrictions are lifting across New Jersey, Newark students and teachers will be required to wear masks this coming school year. Superintendent Leone says that could change, but not if it puts the health of students and teachers at risk. Monitoring the numbers very carefully as everyone gets back and then making decisions um, in the days leading to so that parents are aware and then definitely making changes in a logical way as we move forward. Newark Public Schools' first day of class is on September 6th. If you missed it, you can hear the Newark Today show on WBGO 88.3 FM tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Inflation was already a concern for tourism officials at the Jersey Shore before the start of the season. Then gas prices reached an all-time record after Memorial Day. Have the high prices kept people away? WBGO's Kenneth Burns went there to find out. The weather is perfect as evidenced by the packed beaches here in Wildwood. Families are enjoying catching a ball or napping in the sand or bathing in the ocean water. Some are taking time out to visit the friendly fudgy wudgy vendor. I got one. Yep. Molly Powell is the vendor. She says all of the ice cream treats she sells have gone up. I asked about the cost of one of my favorites, chips galore. How much was it uh, before this year? Uh, chips galore was probably about four fifteen. Maybe before that it would be even be four dollars, and it went up a whole dollar now. Though the price of ice cream, including my beloved chips galore, is higher, along with gas, hotel rooms, and etc., people are still coming to the shore this year. Cheryl Lozada says it wasn't a question of whether her husband and daughter were going on vacation this year. 
her family was going to come here from Hackettstown, New Jersey, regardless of the cost. We had a little bit of money put aside, a little bit of money saved, and we only live once on this earth, so you can't put a price on the beach and your mental state of mind. Inflation was already a concern for leaders on the shore, but they still expected a very robust tourism season and that business would return to pre-pandemic levels. The July numbers from the State Division of Gaming showed that casino revenue is up 8% at Atlantic City casinos compared to the same month in 2021. Jane Bucknevich with Stockton University's Levinson Institute of Gaming, Hospitality and Tourism says the strong numbers are a really good sign for the rest of the season. The fact that the casino revenues are up by a pretty substantial amount suggests that People are visiting and they are spending money. Beyond the casino, Atlantic City is still beaming from hosting this year's NAACP convention, one of the first major events the city has hosted since reopening from pandemic shutdowns. Larry Sieg is president and CEO of Meet AC, the group that markets the city as a place for meetings and conventions. He says while meetings are on pace with 2019, his colleagues at DoAC, who market Atlantic City as a tourist destination, say numbers are so far exceeding pre-pandemic levels. It's so busy. The city's packed. The hotels are running at almost 100% occupancy every day. Numbers are also exceeding 2019 and 2021 in Cape May County. But Diane Wheeland, the county's tourism director, says she has noticed a shift in how people spend their money once they get to the shore. For example, those who rent condos or houses with kitchens are opting not to eat at restaurants every day. They're going to the grocery store, they're cooking at home, they might have a barbecue or something at their rental property, and that's what they're doing. And maybe there'll be one night they're going out for a special dinner. Sieg in Atlantic City also notices a change in spending habits. I think people are holding back in some areas, and I think some areas they're spending more. Cheryl Lozada and her family have been coming to Wildwood for more than a decade since her daughter, Leah was a toddler. She says they are paying considerably more for their vacation this year. Their hotel room for five days was almost $1,900, and they spent $120 on gas getting here from northwestern New Jersey. It's normally like half of that, and I drive a very small car. I drive a, a Subaru Legacy, which is a four-cylinder, so... I can't imagine if you had a bigger type vehicle. Though they had money saved and had planned on coming to the shore anyway, Lozada says they are being mindful of how they spend their money, like limiting the number of games they play on the boardwalk and how often they visit the fudgy wudgy cart. We just went to a sub shop and we got some subs and some chips. And rather than go to like one of the restaurants on the boardwalk, which might be more costly. Lozada says foregoing restaurants not only saves them money, but gives them more time on the beach. For the WBGO Journal, I'm Kenneth Burns in Wildwood. Joining us on the WBGO Journal is Dr. Augusta Palmer, director of the SFC Women's Film Festival, a documentarian, associate professor and chair of communications arts at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, filmmaker and scholar who holds her doctorate in cinema studies from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. And she is working on a new full-length documentary that just looks fabulous when you check out the trailer and you, you learn more about it, The Blues Society, which is about blues and bohemia in the 60s America. From Houston, Mississippi, a young man who now makes his home in Memphis, Tennessee. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Booker White. <laughs> 
we decided to have a blues festival and get all the old blues guys and get them a chance to make some money. And we wanted to call it the Memphis Country Blues Society. We felt that they were being forgotten, so we thought it would be interesting to put on a show to see that they were included in some of this glory that was going on over the rock scene at that time. Next person that's going to perform for you really needs no introduction. Furry Lewis. Nathan Morgan. Reverend R.T. Wilkins. As a black musician, we was going places that our peoples couldn't go because they wanted to hear us play. Things was beginning to get a little better, and so everybody got a chance to really come and enjoy the music. Dr. Palmer, great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Doug. I'm a big WBGO fan. I love to listen to blues breaks, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm a big jazz fan, too, so I just love the station. So thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, and uh, in honor of one of the great blues announcers that we lost uh, a while back is Bob Porter, and I'm wearing Bob's Blues Festival shirt in honor of him today as we talk about the blues with Dr. Augusta Palmer. And Dr. Palmer, first of all, where did your interest in the blues come from? Well, I guess I inherited that. I like that you're wearing this shirt in memory of of WBGO DJ because I, I really got to know the blues through my dad uh, and his name is Robert Palmer and he's one of the subjects in this documentary the Blues Society about the Memphis Country Blues Festivals in the 1960s and he was a writer for the New York Times and Rolling Stone a music critic and wrote a book called Deep Blues which is still used frequently as a textbook for people studying the blues and is a great is a great first read. You know, there have been there have been a lot of advances in blues scholarship since the 1980s when that was published. But uh, so that's that's how I that's how I came to it. Dr. Palmer is one of many talents, but we're we're going to talk about blues for a while. And it, it your work has always seemed to be a family affair. You've got your children involved in some of your work, and you mentioned your dad. And mom was at the 69 Memphis Blues Festival, and you were there in a way. Explain that. Yes. So at the 69 Blues Festival, my mom was taking tickets at the gate. There's no footage of her, which just like makes me want to cry. Um, and I was there because she was pregnant with me and I was born in December of 69. So, uh, so I like to say I've been working on this film even before my life began. Um, but, uh, but yes, she was there and she actually, she made a quite impassioned speech asking people who had, had kind of rushed past the gate and not paid for their tickets. She was asking them to please pay the $1 admission fee, which was a benefit for the musicians like Furry Lewis and Robert Wilkins and these great Fred McDowell, these great blues legends um who you know were not were, were kind of beginning a resurgence in their career but you know were not as recognized as they could have been and that was really one of the purposes of the festival so she felt very passionately and made what uh, she has assured me is her only public speech in her life and you know in my 50 something years of knowing her i would say that's true because she felt so strongly that that she wanted the people of memphis and the people who'd come from further away to to honor these folks and support them 
those artists did not get much publicity back in those days. And it's mentioned in your documentary how people finally got a, a chance to see how these so talented musicians really shaped the whole idea of the blues and, and the genre, but yet little recognition for it. So to pay that entry fee was just a small ask that your mother was asking there to support some fabulous artists that in many ways, you have one person saying in, in the documentary, they would have been superstars if it had been another country. Yeah, or had been a country not so riven by racism as our country has been. You know, that's that's part of our our history and something that we really have to, I think, face up to and and reckon with. And I think that that's part of what part of what's driven me and kept me making this film is the the need to sort those things out um, and and think about that, because I think there was a tendency also to feel like, well, now we recognize these people and their importance and kind of our work is done here, folks, let's move on. And as we know, you know, that's, that's not the, that's not the case. Um, there, there's so much work left to be done. And I think being a professor at St. Francis College, you know, I'm constantly reminded of that. Uh, the college is very interested in social justice in all ways. And so that's really inspired me to, uh, to work on this film and think about those issues. The footage that I've seen in the trailer is really terrific. How did you get a hold of this footage? Um, well, this footage is really, it's a story that I think people have heard a little bit like Summer of Soul in a way. Um, so the festival went from really being this kind of hippie happening in 1966 to being this multimedia event by 1969. And the footage that I'm using is from 1969. And in that year, there was both a, a TV show um, made by a very, like an emerging PBS that's still, I think, called CPB, Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They had WNET sent a crew down there from New York to shoot the film festival. Um, and then that was part of this show with Steve Allen um, kind of hosting that was called The Sounds of Summer. Um, and he did concerts around the country in that show and but at the same time there was an independent crew there led by a gentleman named gene rosenthal who had a record label and still has a record label um adelphi records and so that crew came down and shot with five cameras on beautiful 16 millimeter footage it's just like really like you really feel like you're there in that moment um, because the footage is so gorgeous and it sat in um, Jean's closet for many years. And um, some of it has been used in a film called Memphis 69, which, which came out. Um, but I also was able to license it from Fat Possum, who, Fat Possum Records, who made that film uh, and, and bought the footage from Jean. So it was a very, very exciting thing to get this, you know, to open up this footage that so few people had seen. It's like a treasure trove. We're speaking with Dr. Augusta Palmer, who is out with yet to be released, but will be released soon, The Blues Society, a full-length documentary about blues and bohemia in the 60s America. In all your research and going through that 
fabulous footage from 69. What have you learned about the Memphis Blues Festival or the whole kind of blues era there between 66 and 69 where a resurgence was going on, people starting to learn more about these artists who had been passed over? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, certainly, you know, I just learned how how young and fresh the organizers were and how enthusiastic um one of the organizers was a guy named randall lyon um who's, who's no longer with us but who i knew well when i was in college and and lived in memphis for a couple of years during that time and he he said we were full of poetic furor and i just think that's like the perfect expression of them that they just all were kind of like a, a team coming together to support their their idols and and that's a really beautiful thing and i think i also learned that you know from some of the subjects like nancy jeffries who is one of the organizers and now has been you know kind of a leading light in the music industry working uh, running bob marley music at a certain point and now working for for paul, paul mccartney um but she said to me when i was doing the first kind of pre-interview with her she said you know people think about the 60s and they think it's just this party it's just was fun all the time we were all stoned and dancing and she's like yeah that's true but there was also a kind of more serious-minded side to it that we that they saw things that were wrong in society. They saw people like these blues artists who they viewed as, as almost kind of gurus or just people who had this incredible knowledge and and history um, and beautiful music, and and they wanted to support that and bring that out to people. I think another thing though that I that I've learned that's been really important is from talking to scholars and historians um, like and writers to the Zandria Robinson is the sociologist from Georgetown University who specializes in blues and I got to talk with her pretty early on as well as Jamie Hatley who's an amazing um, writer of fiction and nonfiction and now has done some filmmaking and is is doing uh, screenwriting for TV. But they helped me kind of look at that footage in a different way and see different things and see that although there's this moment, I mean, I think I was already starting to get the sense of this, but they helped me really articulate it and see it more clearly. Very recently, I was talking with Jamie and we were talking about these particular scenes where there's a young white woman, very excited, like holding an umbrella over Book of White's head or walking with an older Black musician, um, Nathan Beauregard, walking him to the stage. And I think my first tendency, and a lot of people's tendency would just be to see like a love in there. And that is part of it. But I, she was really seeing that, you know, Book of White, if he had been anywhere else other than on that stage in Memphis in this celebratory mode, if he'd been just a few miles into Mississippi or someplace else, um, you know, he could have really been killed uh, for hanging out with a white woman like that. Um, and, you know, I think I know those things from studying American history, but it was really important for me to talk to people like Jamie and uh, Zandria to 
to really feel that and feel what it's meant to them and their their families. Or, you know, also I was talking about Nathan Beauregard, this this great musician um, who was being walked into the festival and and he was blind. So he had to be walked in, you know, he needed someone to 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 guide him in. And there's, you know, she showed me in his body language like a little like discomfort of like, I'm not sure this is okay. And so I think the these white blues enthusiasts, they had a great love for the music and they felt kind of outcast themselves because they were they were crazy hippies, but they also had this incredible privilege that they kind of weren't aware of in, in a lot of ways. So it's been really instructive and important for me to to learn that and see that. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. That moment is still so fraught and we're like living it over and over and over again. It is a hinge and at any moment it could fall back to something else that is painful and hurtful just like that moment. This little concert that drew hundreds of people put people in a very political context where they had to relate to one another and change. They were American heroes. In other more advanced societies, they would have been worshipped. These men had invented the blues. It's the cornerstone, and it just happens to come from our backyard. Yes, I've been your dog, but I don't mean ever be your slave. It's a very interesting dynamic when you take a look at the, the time period. And of course, you mentioned in the doc the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at that time having a huge impact yeah. on how people felt and, and the music scene as well. I'm curious, as an associate professor and chair of communications arts, at St. Francis College in Brooklyn. Do your students crave the knowledge of the past? We sometimes hear that they just care about the future. Uh, I have a lot of students who really do crave that relationship to the past and understanding it and reinterpreting it. I was in the spring teaching a class about uh, the Western as a form and thinking about and thinking through with my students, the idea that, you know, if we think of the Western, we think of kind of John Wayne and this like swaggering white cowboy, but yet uh, a large number of cowboys were not white. I think, you know, something like 30% were, were Latinx and there, there probably were up to 20% or more. Sometimes they were African-American um, because that Wild West space was a space where people could do things that they couldn't do in the stuffy East Coast society. And so you have these great characters like Nat Love and all these amazing black cowboys. So, but yet they're not what we see most on film. So that idea of American identity being shaped that way through sort of taking the history and making it into a fiction in these Western films and thereby distorting history and my students were very very interested in that and talking about that and talking through that and then also seeing things like the great um 
Herb Jeffries cowboy movies from the 30s, like Two Gun Man from Harlem um, and The Bronze Buckaroo, and seeing that there actually were, you know, African American cowboy movies that were made uh, in the 30s and even before that. So I think that that kind of social justice and reckoning with history is at the center of what I do at the college, and that I have a lot of students who are who are very interested in that and and working through that and talking about those issues and the college really encourages that it's a great place for that kind of intellectual discussion and debate that sometimes also extends into social activism for for people when you're doing documentary work it takes funds it takes support and you've had some important funders in this you want to talk about that yeah absolutely i think that is really one of the the hardest things for documentary filmmakers because often projects take us a long time and a lot of that length of time is often spent really looking for funding and so i feel incredibly lucky and and blessed that uh the the blue society has received funding from the national endowment for the arts and the national endowment for the humanities and niska the new york state council for the arts also got our seed money from St. Francis College from faculty research grants and faculty development grants. So I'm really grateful for that. And if anybody feels so moved, we still got a ways to go. And uh, the Center for Independent Documentary, which is at documentaries.org, is our fiscal sponsor. You can find the Blue Society there and and drop a, a few pennies in our cup um, if you if you feel moved to do so. But I'm I'm really grateful for all the the individuals who have helped us and the the institutions. I feel really proud of that and, and grateful. We mentioned at the top of this interview that family has been a part of your work, and as a documentarian, you're well known for the Hand of Fatima that came out in 2009, a featured documentary about music mysticism and family history and uh, award-winning documentary that uh, has played at places like New York's anthology film archives and other venues and international and national festivals. It's been screened. Tell us a little bit about the hand of Fatima for those who didn't get an opportunity to see it. Um, I just got an opportunity to show it to a great, uh, audience at these uh, post-Mambo movie nights that are run by Ned Sublette, who's a great music writer and uh, thinker about music, I think, as well as a musician himself. Um, so it's very it's very fresh in my mind, more than it might be at other times. But uh, that film is was really kind of the start for me of trying to make this new kind of music film that saw music as a kind of pathway into culture and history. So, and as well as personal history, as well as history writ large with that capital H, right? My journey to Morocco is paralleled with my father's journey to Morocco 30 years before. And we were both going there to meet up with the master musicians of Jijuka, which is a, a, a band that is a hereditary band, a Sufi brotherhood in Northern Morocco near Tangier. And they, they play this ritual music and have been, have kind of served a priestly role in their town of healing people. And my dad went there in 1971 and it, it really changed his whole life. It was really something that he referred to over and over again. But after he passed away, I found that like, I didn't, I hadn't asked enough about that. I didn't understand as much, you know, it became a little bit like your dad's old football stories. And you're just like, 
that again. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, there was a point to that. There was something actually to learn there. Um, so I wanted to go back and see if the mass musicians were still playing their music and doing their thing. And, and I did. And I so I and I took my then 10 month old child, Quinn, who is now 17 with me. And they learned to walk in Morocco, um, which is not a good time for them to learn to walk. You know, they could just like run off into the <laughs> into the city of Tangier. Uh, but anyway, that didn't happen, thankfully. And, and we all had an amazing time and, and broadened our family because through doing that, I really felt like I became part of the family of the master musicians. They were very welcoming to me and particularly Bashir Attar, their leader. So it was a great way to sort of cross cultural barriers um, and and also form new personal relationships. So it's a really beautiful experience for me and get to know my dad a little better and understand what he experienced there. It's also good to know that the Blue Society, a new feature documentary by Dr. Augusta Palmer, will be coming out soon. It's in good hands, as we have heard here on the WBGO Journal. Dr. Palmer continued success. Good luck at St. Francis College there in Brooklyn and with all your film work. Really amazing how many things that you've accomplished and uh, also director of the SFC Women's Film Festival. Once again, thanks for all you do and thanks for joining us. All right. Well, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, Doug, and uh, I'm really happy that you're going to share some news about my film with the WBGO audience. Thanks. You can see my entire interview with Dr. Augusta Palmer about the Blue Society on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the nationally recognized WBGO Journal. You can also hear the WBGO Journal podcast wherever you hear podcasts or at wbgo.org studios. In the meantime, stay tuned to the greatest jazz station in the world, WBGO and WBGO.org.